it seems to me that maybe five votes to grant a stay is not sufficient and maybe the number should be six or seven. Like if we're already conceding that something that involves a deviation from the court's ordinary procedures is appropriate in a context like this, then something more resembling a supermajority requirement, I think actually seems to me um, appropriate. Hello, this is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Deb Malamud. Toward the end of now Justice Amy Coney Barrett's nomination hearing, Senator Richard Blumenthal raised a question about a topic that had not been broached at any previous such hearing. Are you aware of the Supreme Court's, as it's called, shadow docket? He asked. Justice Barrett said she was, adding that it had become a hot topic in the last couple of years. UChicago's own professor, Will Bode, coined the term shadow docket in his 2013 foreword for NYU's Journal of Law and Liberty, defining it as a range of orders and summary decisions that defy the Supreme Court's normal procedural regularity. Like the rest of us, the court's shadow docket has had a crazy year. It has dealt with issues arising from the pandemic, the presidential election, and Trump administration policies, among several other matters. With us today to discuss this topic are Steve Vladek and Kate Shaw. Steve Vladek is a professor at the University of Texas School of Law and a nationally recognized expert on the federal courts, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. He is the co-host of the National Security Law Podcast, CNN's Supreme Court analyst and executive editor of the Just Security blog, and a senior editor at Lawfare. Kate Shaw is a professor at Cardozo School of Law and the co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy. Before joining Cardozo, she worked in the White House Counsel's Office as a special assistant and associate counsel to President Obama. Professor Shaw is also an ABC News legal analyst and co-host of the podcast Strict Scrutiny. Welcome, Professor Vladek, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So let me start by asking you, what is the shadow docket? <laughs> uh, well, so the term was coined, obviously, by Chicago professor Will Bode, um, my my friend from law school. And, you know, Will used it, I think, in a slightly more specific way than I do. But I think it's a, it's a general term for the orders that the Supreme Court issues that don't go through the plenary process of merits cases. So orders on things as mundane as applications for extensions of time to uh, orders as significant as denying Texas's motion for leave to file an original bill of complaint challenging the election results in December. And, you know, the reason why the, I think the term shadow docket is so appropriate is because in lots of respects, these decisions are happening in the shadows. There's never argument before these rulings. There's usually only very limited briefing um, with almost no opportunity for outside participation by amici. We never, or at least almost never, know the vote count unless four justices publicly note their dissent. Um, otherwise, we're always just guessing as to what the vote count was. And sometimes, you know, these decisions come down at all time of day and in the middle of the night, um, literally in the shadows, where, you know, there were a couple of pretty big death penalty cases in July, where there were these 5-4 rulings that came down between 2 and 3 a.m. Um, on a Tuesday and a Thursday. You know, I think that the shadow docket's sort of getting at a number of different ways in which this increasingly important and increasingly voluminous part of the Supreme Court's work is less visible, less accessible to the public, less um, open to the public. It's just, it's, you know, I think the shadow is the perfect word for it. How does a case get on the shadow docket? 
Yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's no, there's no, there's no objective sorting function. I mean, the reality is that the shadow docket encompasses a couple of different things. So, Professor Bode's article in 2015 was focused on when the Supreme Court issues a merits decision at the cert stage. So, what we call a summary reversal, um, where the same order granting certiorari is actually an opinion reversing the the court below. Um, but you know, that's only one example. Um, an application for a stay, right, pending disposition of a cert petition is another example. And each of these different um, examples, each of these different components have their own standards. Um, so the, the standard for whether the court should grant a stay pending appeal is a four-factor test that's different from the standard of whether it should grant an injunction pending appeal that's different from whether, you know, a decision below is ripe for summary reversal. And I think that's part of what's, I think, important and inaccessible um, about what the court is doing in the shadow docket, which is it's actually a lot of different things in different cases um, that are because of the shifts in the rules and because of the subtleties of the standards, that much harder to understand in the absence of a opinion of the court that explains how the relevant standards are being applied to the facts of that case. Is this process something that worries you? What are the stakes of the problems you're pointing out? So, I mean, I think it's worth stressing that like 95% of what happens on the shadow docket is incredibly um, anodyne um, and just not exciting. You know, um, that that the court is granting an application to file an over-length brief, I think is not a grand crisis warranting, you know, significant uh, insight. Um, but, but the small chunk of it where we're seeing more and more um, orders that change the status quo below, right? More grants of stays or lifting lower court stays, more grants of injunctive relief. You know, that the I'm not concerned by the fact that the court is being more aggressive in the abstract. I'm concerned at how poorly the court is explaining its aggressiveness. Um, and so it seems to me that if there really is going to be the significant uptick in how many of these orders are actually altering the status quo in the lower courts, um, right, that that uptick should be coming alongside some, you know, written explanations for why. Um, because without the written explanations for why, we are left to speculate, you know, what is impelling the court to take these steps, how lower court should react to a one-sentence order in these cases. And, you know, that's my concern is that it's not that in the abstract, the court lacks the power to do any of this. It's that a lot of these rulings are departing from how the court usually decides these cases in ways that I think raise, you know, not in every instance, but in the aggregate, um, legitimacy and transparency concerns. Do you think the court recognizes these same concerns? So, you know, there was a moment in November where I thought maybe the message had gotten through. Um, so perhaps one of the most significant shadow docket rulings that we've seen so far this term um, was the 5-4 decision in Roman Catholic Diocese of New York versus Cuomo, where a majority of the court um, agreed to issue an injunction against Governor Cuomo's COVID restrictions as applied to religious uh, uh, houses of worship um, pending appeal. Um, and the court actually wrote an opinion. There's a there's an unsigned per curiam you know, opinion for the court that actually does purport to apply the relevant standard for an injunction. Um, and so I had hoped that maybe that was a harbinger of things to come. But in the couple of months since, you know, as we're sitting here recording this, 
we've seen a whole bunch of additional shadow docket rulings where there were lengthy dissents and where there was no majority opinion. We saw that with the FDA ruling in January, um, where um, right stayed a lower court injunction um, that had suspended the FDA's requirement that uh, a particular kind of medicine used for abortions had to be uh, obtained in person. Um, right, that was you know. There were lots of weird things about that decision that didn't make sense, including the timing of it, that the, that there's no majority opinion to explain. Um, there were a couple of pretty major death penalty rulings on the shadow docket in January that provoked pretty lengthy dissents where there was no majority opinion. So I hope the court will feel increasing pressure um, to explain itself more in this context. I just we haven't seen any evidence yet that that's happening. In Wolfie Cook County, a case decided in February 2020, Justice Sotomayor wrote a stern dissent in which she noted the high burden the government carries when petitioning for an emergency stay. According to Justice Sotomayor, the court has in the past few years been all too quick to grant the government's reflexive requests, a shift in behavior that comes at a cost. Do you agree with her view of the court's assessments of these types of cases? I, I think there's no question the court is being much more solicitous of these kinds of requests. Um, and I think that's for a couple of interrelated reasons. One, I think um, there's now a majority of the court that takes a very different approach to balancing the traditional four factors for emergency relief um, than the court did in the past. Um, in particular, um, when balancing the equities, I think there's now a majority of the court that thinks the equities typically tend to favor the government. Anytime there's an injunction against the government, which is a view that Chief Justice Roberts had expressed in an in-chambers opinion um, about a decade ago, I also think the change in composition of the court is a big part of the story. I mean, the last term that Justice Kennedy was on the court, there were only two shadow docket rulings that led publicly to 5-4 decisions, right? And in his first two terms off the court, there have been 20. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's a reflection of how, you know, I would never call Justice Kennedy a moderate, but I think he did have a moderating influence um, on both sort of camps, um, of justices. And without that influence, I think now there's, uh, you know, even without the chief justice, as we saw in the Roman Catholic diocese case, there is now a solid, at least five justice majority to not be shy about using the shadow doctrine, about using emergency relief to really affect the status quo while cases make their way through the courts. And, you know, that may sound like a technical thing that we shouldn't care about. But to me, the critical part is many of these cases never actually make it to the merits. Right, that you know, the this is not the this is not just preserving the status quo until the merits reside by the Supreme Court. Increasingly, this is preserving the status quo until the cases become mooted, um, as at least some of them have by the end of the Trump administration. So, you know, I think these are all sort of parts of this broader puzzle where the the new majority on the Supreme Court is willing to use new procedural approaches um, in ways that maybe weren't as available when Justice Kennedy was still on the court. Why did the Trump administration use this strategy? Does it have to do with the current makeup of the court? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, and by both, I mean both the makeup and some other reasons. Um, so with regard to makeup, I mean, I think everyone agrees that the most important factor is the likelihood of success on the merits. Um, and of course, you know, the Trump administration is going to do a lot better on the likelihood of success on the merits with the court as currently composed than perhaps it would have done even as recently as 2018 when Justice Kennedy was still on the court. But I also think that, and, and you see this in the data, it really sped up that as the administration sort of dipped its toes into the water and tried to be a little more aggressive and received no pushback 
right? I mean, they didn't get, they didn't always get the relief they were asking, but even when relief was denied, usually it was either without prejudice or over a couple of dissents. And so I think like the, the court's acquiescence, even in the cases where they didn't rule for the government, just further incentivized the SG to be more and more aggressive. And so we saw like the, I think it was something like 41 total applications for emergency relief during the Trump administration, but that, you know, it, it was back heavy where I think the, the government got more and more aggressive as one, they were succeeding, and two, even when they were losing, they weren't getting yelled at. And I think that's just sort of, you know, it's this is why I think it's not quite fair to blame this on the Trump administration, because I think the a, any good government lawyer in that position would do it. But I also think it's not quite right to blame it on other factors. I mean, the The Trump administration often said, this is just a response to nationwide injunctions. Well, no, it isn't, because many, if not more than half of these cases were not nationwide injunctions. And there's no obvious reason why a nationwide injunction, you know, would sort of somehow be reviewed differently by a court of appeals than a non-nationwide injunction. Um, And indeed, that you mentioned Sotomayor's dissent in the Cook County case. The whole point of the Cook County case is that was not a nationwide injunction. That was an Illinois-specific injunction. And the court still did what it did. So I I think it was really very much a sort of self-sustaining system where as the government started to become more and more aggressive and as the court acquiesced in that aggressiveness, the government became still more aggressive, the court acquiesced still more. And as all this is happening, other parties noticed. Um, So we've seen the shadow docket become incredibly active, not just in federal government cases, but in private challenges to local and state COVID restrictions, which I think was very much something the Trump administration had cleared the way for procedurally by making this such a more common part of the court's work. What's the future of the docket under a conservative court and Democratic president? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's no doubt that the Biden administration will not be nearly as successful, um, uh, you know, in asking the Supreme Court for emergency relief when it loses in the lower courts. Um, I, I think there are sort of there are two pieces, right? What's going to happen in cases involving the federal government, and what's going to happen in other cases? And in the federal government cases, I mean, you know, the most important shadow docket ruling of the Obama administration was about the Clean Power Plan, when the Obama administration actually won in the D.C. Circuit. And then the challengers were able to get the Supreme Court to stay the D.C. Circuit's decision pending their appeal, which was mooted before it ever got to the Supreme Court by the end of the Obama administration. So I think we will see some of those where the shadow docket is actually used to put on hold Biden administration policies that actually somehow prevail in the lower courts. But, you know, to me, the real place to watch is actually not federal cases. The real place to watch is how much more the shadow docket is used in COVID cases, um, right, in election-related disputes, in other challenges to local and state regulations, because I think that's what we've really now set the stage for, right, by, in my view, diluting the, the standards and propriety of emergency relief. You know, it's now a lot easier for the average litigant to walk into the Supreme Court and say, look, this is an emergency. Why? Because look at all these other things that you said were emergencies. There's a lot of discussion out there about reforming the Supreme Court. And, you know, there's a lot, there's been stories in the news in the last few days about the, the president's commission on Supreme Court reform and what they're going to be tasked with. And I think there's an assumption that, like, that's all just a foil for a sort of stealth discussion of court packing. And, and I think this is actually a really good example of how that's not true, of how there are actually any number of areas where the Supreme Court's sort of docket, and I don't just mean the shadow docket, in recent years um, has evolved in ways reasonable people might think need reform. Um, So, you know, last term, the Supreme Court heard the fewest number of argued cases since 1862. That's a 
bit crazy. I mean, and even though at least some of that was COVID related, not all of it was. Um, right, that the the courts now averaging closer to 60 argued cases a year as opposed to 80, 90 when I was in law school, or 150 in the 1980s. Um, the court is, you know, turning away a lot of direct appeals that it's then having to deal with later in sort of 11th hour stay applications in capital cases. You know, maybe we ought to be having a conversation about whether the Supreme Court should have mandatory appellate jurisdiction in capital cases. Um, to try to take some pressure off the shadow docket when it comes to stays of execution. So I guess, you know, to me, the shadow docket story is interesting, both in its own right, and as an example of, of sort of the more broad topic of ways the Supreme Court has arguably gotten um, off kilter, um, right? I mean, it's been 33 years since Congress last seriously reformed the Supreme Court's docket. Um, in 1988, you know, I think it's time to have a conversation about the shape of the court's docket that isn't just about, you know, who has a majority of justices now, but whether we really think this is the right allocation of cases and this is the right allocation of workload. And the shadow docket is obviously, whether you like it or not, an increasingly big part of that story. Thanks, Professor Vladek. That about wraps things up. Cool. Hi, Professor Shaw. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. What kinds of cases have been on the shadow docket in the past year or so? Um, sure. You know, I would say that there are a few categories that I have been the most interested in in terms of the shadow docket um, in the very recent past. So one is what we've referred sometimes on my podcast, Strict Scrutiny, uh, to as the democracy shadow docket or the election shadow docket. So a lot of election-related cases that have come up on an accelerated timetable um, and the court has disposed of sometimes with no opinion at all, sometimes with very short opinions. Um, but that's definitely part of the shadow docket. Category two, I would say, is sort of the COVID shadow docket. There have been some significant COVID cases that have come up um, and have been disposed of without full briefing and argument. And the third, especially if we're talking about the last year, that I think is quite significant is the death penalty shadow docket. So basically from the period of July uh, 2020 until January of 2021, um, when the Trump administration you know, had reinstated the federal death penalty after about two decades without any federal executions, the court disposed of a lot of last minute challenges to these executions on the shadow docket. So those are the three that I think have been the most significant in the recent past. What is the legal standard for when cases should receive this kind of emergency review? And what do you think it should be? Yeah. So, um, you know, so you're uh, Professor Will Bode and Steve Vladek, I think, you know, have written um, really terrific work about, um, you know, I think the degree to which it is somewhat underspecified, I think, the standard for these kinds of, there, there, are, there are standards in the Supreme Court's rules. Um, they're supposed to be, you know, cases of extraordinary importance. They're, you know, the standard should be higher, right, to dispose of something. Um, it takes five votes, for example, to grant a stay where um, when the court is deciding whether to even hear a case in the ordinary course, um, it requires only four votes to grant certiorari. And, uh, and there there are standards in the court's rules that I don't have in front of me, but seem to require, you know, some heightened showing of need or importance in order to justify, you know, a, a stay or a, any kind of emergency action from the Supreme Court. It seems to me that maybe five votes to grant a stay is not sufficient and maybe the number should be six or seven. Like if we're already conceding that something that involves a deviation from the court's ordinary procedures is appropriate in a context like this, then something more resembling a supermajority requirement, I think actually seems to me um, appropriate. So I do think that that thinking about what the right number of votes, so that something that truly commands cross-ideological support um, and for some 
you know, compelling reason must be addressed on an expedited basis, then I think, of course, the court should, in rare circumstances, be able to act outside of its ordinary decisional processes, which are slow, right? They just move slowly. And so it's not that I think that the court should be disabled from acting on an expedited basis. Um, but I think that that perhaps something more akin to a, a supermajority, a true supermajority voting requirement might be appropriate. I mean, the other thing that I have thought of in the last year in particular, you know, and this doesn't have to do with sort of voting numbers so much as sort of, you know, general procedures and protocols, um, is that the court could absolutely convene telephonic arguments in these cases if it wished to. And I wonder whether having now dipped its toe into the waters of deciding cases based on telephonic arguments it would be a good moment for the court to stop and consider whether it would be appropriate for it to do that. I mean, I think about, you know, the early days of the Trump administration when um, the first iteration of the travel ban was issued and the federal court scrambled to hear arguments on an incredibly accelerated basis. Um, I remember the telephonic arguments that the, the Ninth Circuit held and something like, you know, 100,000 people streamed these arguments via the Ninth Circuit's website and CNN carried them live. And it was actually kind of a big moment. And that was a case that needed to be addressed quickly. Um, but where the legal issues were complicated and it was, you know, there's no way they could have responsibly disposed of, I don't think, the case without hearing some kind of argument from the parties. I think that's true about many of the kinds of cases that the Supreme Court has disposed of without argument uh, in the last year. But it strikes me that there are lots of templates, in particular in the last few years in the federal courts and in particular in the Supreme Court in the last year, that might point the way toward you know, something that involves you know, an accelerated consideration of certain kinds of cases, but where the advocates have an opportunity to present their cases to the justices. Do you think shadow docket reform will ever happen if so, how might it be brought about besides Justice Sotomayor's fiery dissents? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, God bless her for some of the dissents that she has written, you know, and I think sometimes. So, yes, I think that it feels to me like reform should be, you know, a live possibility. I think that the, that there I think there was a degree of public outcry after the April decision to shut down some of the you know, COVID-related expansion in early voting in Wisconsin that was one of, I think, the sort of the big you know, democracy shadow docket interventions that the court made. Um, and I think that you know, it, it felt at the moment, or you know, the week that it happened, right? remember the court intercedes on the eve of that primary election to roll back some of the ex expansions that this district court had very carefully uh, crafted. And, you know, the country then saw, you know, the next day, lines of people waiting to vote in Wisconsin um, who would have been permitted to vote by mail, right, under the district court's order, but were not because of the Supreme Court's intervention. Um, and it felt to me like that might be the kind of moment that was dramatic enough um, and kind of outrageous enough to potentially sort of spur public interest in reform. And, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that, you know, Nine months later, we, you know, it feels like sort of the outrage has abated. But you know, there were things that were, in some ways, as outrageous or more outrageous that I think flew a little bit under the radar. So that was in April. I think that it was because I think both because of the visuals of the the long lines that followed and the kind of direct causal connection between the Supreme Court's intervention and those visuals, um, that felt like a more dramatic and it was a, a higher profile moment. It also was the case that there was, you know, some reason giving, right? So you know, I think probably. Because 
I don't know if there was going to be a, an act. There was a per curiam opinion in the case, a few pages long. There was, you know, a sharp and incredibly memorable dissent, right, by Justice Ginsburg, who was, of course, still then on the court. And I don't know whether the per curiam was written because it, some response was required to the Ginsburg dissent or whether, whether there was always going to be a per curiam. Um, but it was, you know, because it was it was all happening on such an expedited basis, it was a pretty sloppy per curiam on the facts and on the law. And that happens kind of inevitably when you're going to resolve important cases, you know, without adequate time and care. Um, but what I think was even a little bit more scandalous was a few months later in July, the court basically did the same thing. It, it was a, a much more modest expansion um, of absentee voting, and this is out of Alabama. Um, you know, it was basically, there was a district court that had basically required there was, you know, the vote, there was an, a voter ID requirement um, and a requirement of two witnesses or a notary in order to apply for an absentee ballot, right? So you had to either copy your your, your photo ID. It might have been both a photocopy of the, of, of the voter ID and two witnesses or a notary. I think that actually is right. And a district court, after, you know, very kind of careful consideration of the claims of these particular plaintiffs and a drafting of a lengthy opinion, you know, found that those requirements needed to be loosened as to, you know, voters over the age of 65 and voters with disabilities. And the court stayed that order in early July, right before the primary, with no explanation whatsoever, right, in the face of this very careful opinion uh, by an Alabama district court judge, you know, thereby either disenfranchising or really endangering this, you know, extremely vulnerable population at a moment when, you know, the sort of kind of summer spike was fully underway. And in, in April in Wisconsin, the spring COVID spike was, you know, sort of in full effect. Um, and that one, because I think it was, there was no written opinion and we didn't have the visual demonstration of the impact on the ground of what the Supreme Court had done, really flew under the radar, but it was just as outrageous. And in some ways it was more outrageous because to circle back to what I just said about Wisconsin, at least in the Wisconsin case, there was you know some reason giving, even if the reasons were unconvincing and the opinion was flawed. The Alabama case involved no reason giving at all. And this is like, I think what is so distressing about the court's you know, processes in these shadow docket cases, right? Just that reason giving is so essential to the task of judging. Um, and to give no reasons at all in cases that are this consequential seems to me pretty outrageous, right? You think about an administrative agency. So the Supreme Court requires administrative agencies all the time to give reasons for doing what they do or for failing to act. And even where there are reasons given, the court sometimes strikes down agency action because it, you know, hasn't considered other potential courses of action or hasn't carefully weighed evidence. Um, but the idea that an agency could just take this unbelievably consequential action and literally give no explanation at all is absurd. And yet the Supreme Court won't hold itself to anything approaching the same standard in these kinds of cases. And of course, we're talking about stakes, you know, in the death penalty uh, cases, the stakes obviously couldn't be higher. And the court in a number of those cases has, with no reasons given at all, issued stays that had the effect of actually allowing executions to go forward, you know, that very day. On a July episode of We the People podcast, you voiced concern for the way in which election cases might be treated in the shadow docket context. You said, we are going to be in fairly uncharted waters when it comes to election administration. In retrospect, how would you assess the way that the court treated these cases? Yeah, I, I think I was going into the election, um, I was really nervous, right, about what the Supreme Court's intervention might look like. And I think we largely dodged a bullet because... The election was 
the vic- Biden's victory was decisive enough in enough states um, that there was no real way for the Supreme Court to intervene in a, in a fashion that would be outcome determinative. Um, and I think having sort of realized that um, the court, you know, either, you know, mostly sat on a lot of these election cases, right, that that that, that came up to the court. Some of them are sitting still. Um, and you know, acted on the uh, some of the cases that it had to respond to, like the you know the attempt by Texas and a number of other states to invoke the court's original jurisdiction to challenge election administration in other states. You know, the court denied leave to file, um, and otherwise, it you know it, it it simply failed to act. What so I I think that by sort of sheer luck in terms of how the votes broke, um, there was never a scenario sort of you know between November third and and inauguration uh, in which it looked like the Supreme Court's intervention as to a single state that could be outcome determinative was a, a live possibility. Um, so, you know, I think we just, we it's in some ways it's impossible. I think the Supreme Court's performance was perfectly adequate in that it didn't um, go out of its way to intercede in the election in any form. And it did, you know, the obviously correct thing, like d- deny leave to file um, in Texas's patently absurd case. Um, but I just don't know that we have enough actual material to work with to really give a true evaluation of the court's performance um, because this election was largely fought in you know other venues. Do you think Chief Justice Roberts is likely to take shadow docket reform into his own hands given his concern for institutional legitimacy or is it going to take public pressure? You know, I think that this is this kind of area of judicial administration is one in which the chief has a good deal of power over the court, right? He doesn't need to amass a majority um, as far as I know and as far as I can tell, to potentially at least doing things like implementing a norm of actually writing a short opinion as opposed to like in the Alabama case, right, like giving no opinion at all or in a number of these federal executions, providing no explanation whatsoever. To implement a norm of reason giving is something that I think the chief could could clearly do without, you know, formally bringing it to his colleagues. Um, and I think that that concern about institutional legitimacy, um, you know, that's not independent of public reaction and public pressure. But I think that, um, so So I think that the answer is yes, he could, and yes, it may take a degree of public pressure. Um, and what that looks like, I think, is is a little bit difficult. Um, I think that that the Senate can elevate a lot of these, or, or either House of Congress, but, um, you know, the Senate, because it confirms these folks, it has always had a closer relationship to the work of uh, the court. Um, you know, I think that Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, we've had on my podcast, um, is really focused on, you know, Supreme Court reform, not, you know, shadow docket reform specifically, but I think that um, that as a general matter, you know, kind of transparency and openness on the quarter values that White House has pushed and that those those values, you know, sort of you have you you see them you see the dif, sort of the deficits on things like transparency in other parts of Supreme Court you know kind of procedures and processes whether we're talking about recusal or disclosure requirements when it comes to amicus briefs or even you know the reform that the court instituted a few years ago of making a clear when it made post slip opinion release you know so the court edits its opinion sometimes pretty substantially after it releases the initial slip opinion um, and. In some ways, it was like the court 
was, was, was a little dodgy about when it was making changes. And in the five years that typically intercede between the you know, issuance of the original slip opinion and the actual publication of the final Supreme Court opinion in U.S. reports, a lot of changes get made, some you know, very marginal and kind of cosmetic and some pretty substantive. And um, one example is in 2014, law professor Richard Lazarus wrote an article calling attention to the Supreme Court's practice of editing its opinions after releasing the initial slip opinion. Um, and I don't think anybody was really aware of the extent to which the court made sometimes substantive modifications to its opinions after releasing what were basically just initial drafts to the public. Um, so he wrote this really comprehensive piece charting some of the changes, again, some quite substantive in Supreme Court opinions after issuance. And I think it got a lot of attention. Uh, Adam Liptak wrote a column about it in the New York Times, um, and it became a topic of conversation and, you know, some additional writing. And it got the attention of the justices. And not too long after that, they started a policy of actually posting on the website any changes to opinions that were made after initial release. And that was, I think, a really important kind of pro-transparency reform that, you know, attention, again, by academics and the press and sort of the public more broadly clearly led to. So, you know, I do think there's a template. Thanks so much. It was great talking with you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshaiElrev and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 4.